What if God was one of us? Just a slob like one of us. Just a stranger on the bus trying to make his way home. Does anyone know what I'm... Right, come on, this is a song. The immortal words of Joan Osborne in the song What If God Was One of Us back in 1995, before some of you were even born. But it was, back then it was super catchy, and it still is, but it's also really insightful, isn't it? You know, I, I'm sure like it did to me back then made many people think, what would God look like and what features would he have? This week I read an article in the news that brought me to, this, um, to the website of the University of North Carolina. And the article was about how a group of psychologists uh, surveyed over 500 American Christians and their task was to identify what they imagined God to look like. And this is what they came, came up with. Click is not working. Right? So this is what they came up with. They talked about, um, they had to randomly look at faces and pair them up and select which face from each pair appeared more like how they imagined God to appear. And by combining all the selected faces, the researchers could assemble this mishmash, this composite of the face of God that reflected how each person imagined God to appear. And the results were both surprising and revealing. Generally, in the Western context, one of the things that we, we think about a lot is uh, we always envision God, right? And we envision God usually as a, an old man with a white beard, maybe, like a Santa Claus figure. And it's funny, if you asked me to, to think about what I think about God, I probably would have thought that God would look more a bit like Dwayne Johnson, maybe, or Brad Pitt, guys that I think are very handsome. But what this research uncovered was that Christians in America saw God as a younger, more feminine and less Caucasian that, that more than popular culture suggests. Now, one of the professors in this research, Kurt Gray, he made this statement, people's tendencies to believe in a God that looks like them is consistent with an egocentric bias. Isn't that, isn't that interesting? Because I thought of Dwayne Johnson. But um, they tend to imagine a God that looks a lot like them or the society around them. Now, isn't that fascinating? If there was an image of, our, of, of God in our heads, what, we would imagine God to have human features, don't we? Or we're raised in, in a Western context that tells us that God doesn't look like a, a walking broccoli or a pickle rick or a half-dragon, half-lion creature. We're raised with a picture of God that looks more like a, a glowing, good-looking, perfect, light-skinned human. And I think there's something unique about that. There's something unique about being human, isn't there? Something about us being an advanced species, something about us being on top of the food chain. And so we generally want to imagine God as, as based on our physiology as humans, our looks, the fact that we have minds to reason, we stand erect on two feet, and we have a capacity to create or feel emotions. But is that what God wants us to focus on when we think of him and ourselves? And perhaps the question we need to ask is, what does it actually mean for us as humans to be made in God's image? What did God intend for us when he created us as human beings? Last week, we looked at the, the whole chapter of chapter one, right, to see how God created with power and wisdom. And we ended our talk last week thinking through how we can, as creatures of creation, glorify God, acknowledge his majesty over creation. 
But today we're going to zoom in. We're going to zoom in on these three verses to see how the creation of us as humans, as men and women, and the, and the purposes that have been set out for us in this, in this world. And why? why are we just going to focus on these three? Because I think as we read through the creation account, in the process of creation, he finishes with, with, this, with creating humans. We're essentially the pinnacle of creation. We're the apex. And, and God chooses to, to make us, human beings, unique amongst creation. And what our Bible reading today tells us is that to be made in God's image, we're going to figure out these three things, that we have worth and dignity. We have a need for relationships and we have a responsibility to steward. Okay, they're the three things we're going to unpack today. So let's, let's get into it. Verse 26, follow along with me in your Bibles, says this. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. So earlier Chris said that you guys, I taught you guys last week ex nihilo, right? Today, the Latin phrase is the imago Dei. Right? We are made in God's image, the Imago Dei. Sounds grand, right? That means in creating the human being, we're designed to reflect the God who created us. Not trees, not animals or birds and fish. We're at the high point of creation, and human beings are uniquely created to reflect God himself. Now, if that's true, and if God created us to be special and set apart from the rest of creation, can you see that there's a, there's a value There's a dignity that he gives us. We're created with a sense of value and dignity, and we've been given this spiritual nature shaped to relate to God. So that's that's the first point we need to understand about being made as the Imago Dei and the uniqueness of it. Now, this matters, doesn't it? It matters in our world because while some people say we're just an accident or just a complex creature evolved from lower life forms to be more advanced, it's, it's... There's more to it. God shows us we're treasured. We're treasured as a unique species in all of creation. Now, that might come as a bit of a surprise because last week we talked about how small we are. We're just tiny specks of dust. And yeah, we are small. And we are finite. But in the God that we know is infinite and majestic and grand. But the Bible describes this real intimacy, doesn't it? This intimacy in the weaving together in the creation of man. And we go to the next chapter. If you have your Bibles, you can follow along with me. Chapter 2, verse 5. We're going to get into a bit more detail of how we're created. It says this. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils, the nostrils, the breath of life, and the man became a living being. So you see, God spends a bit more time here to create human beings. While, while trees and plants are created through the, the natural biological methods of water and sunlight, God formed man himself like a potter that molds the clay. God formed us out of dust. And listen to this, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Isn't that beautiful? The first man, Adam, was a real human distinct from the rest of creation. Last week I described to you how the creation story was more important in the context of the day, right? The people who this was written to, it was written to Israelites 2,000 years before Jesus. They were surrounded by cultures around them who told them that the sun and the moon and animals were gods. And so in those ancient animalistic religions, humans were created not with a sense of worth, but they were created to be servants of gods. 
humans had a very low position in the universe, in those cultures. And so what they would do, they would have to sacrifice their children and other things to appease the gods. But here in Genesis, already from the outset, our story begins with God who loves his creation. Our story begins with God who gives humans a special position above the rest of creation. Now, there are implications, aren't there? If we believe God creates us with value and dignity, it actually shapes the way we see ourselves, doesn't it? Now, I know many of us often hate the image we see in the mirror. We look at ourselves, we look at our imperfections, wishing some parts were bigger, some parts were smaller, some parts were more defined. We look at our personalities and how we're wired. We look at our brokenness and our weaknesses. We look at our flaws and our mistakes, and we often want to beat ourselves up. There's this self-hate that's going on. And yes, we do live in a fallen world. There is sin and there is brokenness that we see around us. But there's also that sense of brokenness in our own bodies and in our own minds. You see, God created us and saw that it was good. But sin has twisted that so we don't feel like it's ever good. And sometimes it really does suck, doesn't it? And you wonder why God created me or yourself this way. But as we understand this truth of being made in the image of God with worth and value, it should really affect the way we see ourselves. It affects the way that we see our identities too, doesn't it? And this isn't just positive thinking, wearing a, a facade to cover up our blemishes. Our stories begin with cr- being created to be unique and special amongst creation. We need to look at the bigger picture, see how God sees us. Yes, some of us might be tall, some of us might be short, some might be driven by logic, others by feelings, but there are things, and there are things out of our control, the context, the environments that we grow up with, it causes us to be a certain way, but what we need to hear ultimately is we've been created with worth and dignity. You're loved, friends. I'm loved because we've been created creatively, even amongst the fallenness of our world. And so the first implication, God calls us to embrace that. The beauty and worth and value of the human whole he's made you and I to be, to love ourselves in a sense as God's lovingly created us. I want to remind us of that truth today. If you might be feeling broken and that you might think that God made a mistake with you, God created you the way you are and embrace that. Now, this is a really hard topic. This is a really hard topic for me. Especially in this part where the Bible says he created humans, male and female, he created them. I know with our society today that we're being taught from a a very young age, you can change who you are if you think, if you believe in your mind and your feelings tell you that you're not created the way you should be, you can change. And so some of our guys watched a clip that I sent them from the show Atlanta with Donald Glover about a teenage black man who has transracial identity. He realized, I've got an image of it, he realized one day that he'd go to the stores and he wouldn't get the respect that he felt he deserved. So he came to the conclusion that he's white and 35 and wanted to now be addressed as Harrison Booth. He had transracial identity. Now, Atlanta, the TV show is a comedy, it's making fun of the idea, right? And he, you have to watch it, it's hilarious. But underlying this, right, is something a bit more serious. It's becoming more normalized in our generation. And it's how, it's how we're taught to see our, our gender. Underlying this narrative, I'll just take that off the screen, 
Underlying this narrative that our generation is being told is that if you identify yourself as something, then that's what you are. And so let's talk about this. If you're a girl in a a boy's body, then what you believe is right and your physical body is wrong. And so we'll start treating you as what you believe you are. Now, I really want to be sensitive on this controversial topic, but we need to be thinking about this. If we believe that we are created in God's image with value and worth, right, this has implications. And so last week in the AFL, I don't know if you saw this as well, at the Etihad, is that how you say it? Etihad Stadium, they introduced gender-diverse toilets. And there was a sign in the stadium which read this. Gender diversity is welcome here. Please use the restroom that best fits your gender identity or expression. And on Twitter, the nation erupted. They were divided with some saying, that's great, hallelujah. While others saying, I wouldn't want my young daughter to have to see a creepy man come out of the female toilet, right? The transgender narrative has evolved from this philosophy on how we see the human being holistically. It says that if your mind thinks something, then that's what you're defined by. And I read this article that I found really helpful, and I can link it to you if you guys want to read it later on. But it's, a, it's what we're doing when we say that our minds define us is that we're actually perpetuating the stereotype. We're perpetuating the stereotype of what it means to be masculine or feminine by allowing our minds to make the call on what we're meant to be. This is really hard, but let me just follow along with me a bit more. But what if we're actually not defined by our minds, but actually our bodies as well? And perhaps our bodies aren't wrong, but it's the stereotype that's wrong. And our minds are affected by society's stereotypes of masculinity and femininity. And so the young man who would rather talk about his feelings, the young man who's gentle, feels more comfortable around women, does that make him less of a male? Rather than letting stereotypes define our generation or our genders, we need to see that God has created us as we are. We need to see that we can embrace our identity from the body that he's created for us. Accepting that the fact that physically, anatomically, physiologically, genetically, chromosomally, we're created the way God intended, and it is good. And so men... It is totally acceptable to be a man who is gentle, who is emotional, who has feelings, and vice versa for women. It's the stereotypes of our culture that's wrong. God didn't make a mistake when he created us. He created us with minds and bodies that aren't at war with each other, but instead to love the body, mind, and self, and affirm the value and dignity that he has created you and I to have. We need to keep fighting against the stereotypes. Now, we might not feel like we have a great identity, but the good and great God has given us a great identity, hasn't he? In Jesus and in just being human. I know this is a really sensitive and tricky topic, and I don't have all the answers, but I do hope that it can be helpful for you as we affirm and encourage our friends who might be in this struggle. And let's walk alongside them with love and grace. But another implication in being the Imago Dei that we need to think about is that we see other human beings with dignity and value too. And so when you go to the New Testament, it's reinforced in James 3 verse 9. With the tongue we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. You see, how we treat others indicates how we value God. 
We can't see humans like some people do in a, in a caste system, right? We can't look lowly on people based on their race, the color of their skin, their vocation, or their intellect. Human beings are created with dignity, so we treat others with respect as God created them, with dignity and value and worth. This is huge in our world. We need to really think about this because we live in a world where modern-day slavery is still very real, where cyber-sex trafficking happens and young girls are sold for money, or in our pornified world where women and men sell their bodies online to be objectified. Is that how God intended us to see other humans, as objects? What about, how we, what about how we see the unborn in the womb? Are they human? This is another sensitive issue, but we, we have to talk about it. And I know that there are people, maybe people in, amongst us here today and, and our friends who have had to face this in their lives. And I'm with you that there is grace and there's forgiveness in Jesus. But we do need to talk about the issue of abortion. We sadly live in a world where life in the womb isn't considered as human, but rather just as a a bunch of cells. I worked with a colleague before uh, in my previous job, and and she was trying to explain this to me, this idea of being a bunch of cells in the womb, and she scratched her arm, and she said, look, I just killed a bunch of cells. That's all the fetuses in the womb. I was horrified. I mean, that's how, many, that's how many see the value of, of human life. We don't give them worth. And I, I do know many who have gone through this procedure and it grieves them to make that decision. And, and, and there is forgiveness in Jesus and I know that it, it hurts. But if the church, if, if Christians, if we don't value every human life and see the, the dignity, value and worth, then do we really believe in the Imago Dei? Do we really believe in being made in the image of God? When we just see human beings as just a bunch of cells, well, it's tragic, but it's led to some really shocking conclusions in our world. If you know Peter Singer, he's a professor of bioethics and philosophy. Um, he, he, he thinks that human rights are grounded in capacities. And what it means to be human means that you have capacity to reason or be rational, to have moral choices, to know right from wrong. And so the argument for abortion in his position is that a fetus isn't a human being because it doesn't have capacity. And on that same logic, he's also concluded that a a newborn infant doesn't have capacity, so isn't yet human, which then leads to the conclusion that it isn't murder to terminate the life of a newborn. Now, if we applied this to others in our society, then it actually applies to also old, senile people. You know, it all happens to to the mentally disabled as well. What do you ground human rights in if it's not humans made in the image of God? The capacity to reason, to be rational? You see, this isn't how God intended us to see one another. God makes us unique in all of creation. He wants us to see the inherent value, worth, and dignity in being human. And so as we look at history... As we look at history, where did, where did the idea of human rights or even morality come from in the Western world? When we do a bit of research, we'll discover things like the first public hospital was started by a Christian woman named Fabiola. You'll read about how uh, William Wilberforce, a Christian, he spoke up in Parliament in England to abolish slavery and the ownership of another human being as, a, as an object. You look at the early church who were champions of the widows, of orphans, and of the weak. 
And you see the whole Western world adopted the idea early on that human beings were made in the image of God and they cared for the rights of others. So let's believe that, friends. Let's believe that in the way we treat other human beings in our world, regardless of who they are. Now that's helpful for our second point. All right, so the first point, we're made with dignity and value. The second point is that we're being made in God's image means being made to be relational creatures. We're relational. We're created for community. We're created for relationship. And so when we read, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, God is referring to himself in plural, but he also says, um, verse 27, God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So he creates two humans. And then you go to chapter 2, if you're still with your Bibles open. In verse 18, the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. The Lord God said, uh, yeah, so the Lord God said it's not suitable. Right? So you and I were not created to not be alone. And you see, the gods in other religions were, were distant, angry gods. But the God of the Bible, he's this intimate, personal, relational God. In himself, the, being the triune God, his relationship with us as well. He desires to be connected with his people. Not distant, not some wrathful deity in the sky, but connected with us. And in humanity too, we all have experienced that, haven't we? None of us like to be isolated beings. We're born into families. We're born into communities. And in our growing, individualized world, we all felt loneliness, and it sucks. We all desire friendships, companionship, and we always feel uneasy when there's conflict or disunity in relationships. Why? Because we're designed to be relational beings and to support one another. That's part of God's created order and purpose for humanity. And if you study anthropology, if you study the, the human studies, um, you'll discover this. One of our students here, she studies law, uh, Eunice, and she was telling me about how her lecturer in class made this statement. As humans, we have organized societies instead of living like disordered animals because with order we can form communities. We'd rather order over chaos because, anthropologically speaking, we have a tendency to want to be in community. This is a law lecturer saying this. We have organized societies because humanity has this tendency to want community, to want relationships. But digging a bit deeper, and I had to do a lot of research this week, I found this TED talk by a psychologist, Kelly McGonigal. You can look it up yourself when you have time, about how to make stress your friend. Now, I need this so bad because, you know, stress is my biggest enemy. So I watched her, and she shared all this Great stuff. All this stuff about biology and how your body works. We get things like adrenaline that pumps through our system, right, when we're stressed. But there's this neuro hormone. I'm in this whole other field here. What am I doing? There's this neuro hormone release called oxytocin. All right? The doctors, the health professionals here are nodding. You might know it as the happy, warm, fuzzy feeling when you give someone a hug. So it's sometimes called the cuddle hormone. Okay? And, and so when this is released during stress, it, it motivates you. Oxytocin actually motivates you to seek support. It actually nudges you to tell someone how you feel. It, it wants you to be surrounded by people who care about you. That's what oxytocin does, according to Kelly McGonigal. It also helps you to empathize and have compassion on others. And so she says in this talk, that she finds it amazing that our bodies are built with mechanisms for stress resilience, and that mechanism is human connection. Wow. Like that, that's amazing. 
it makes you appreciate stress. I hate stress, but it makes you appreciate stress because stress gives access to our hearts and a compassionate heart that finds joy and meaning in connecting with others. And so she ends this talk saying this, she says, when we choose to view stress this way, we're not just getting better at stress, we're making a profound statement. In her words, we can trust ourselves to handle life's challenges and remembering that you don't need to face them alone. Human beings, we're, we're created to, to be in community, friends. And the church is a place where we, we hope is a safe place for us to connect and build relationships. Where there are no barriers or walls that divide us, where our ethnicity or our job titles don't define us, where we're humans connecting with order in a, in a world that is often in chaos around us, where people aren't connecting. We're hoping that the church will be a place where we can do real connections, to do real relationships. So don't feel bad asking me out for a coffee if you're lonely or the person next to you. We're made for relationships. Connect. Connect beyond social media and our mobile phones. Let's have real and raw conversations and relationships. Let's look out for one another. But thirdly, being made in God's image means responsibility to steward and rule as well. And so you go back to verse 26. God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. And then you go down to verse 28. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. We are the... Amago Day, right? We're created in God's image. It's, that means we're meant to image God, right? If he's the sovereign king over all the universe and the world, and he's created us, you and me, to reflect him, we're also responsible then for ruling, partly ruling over the creation that he gives us responsibility to rule over. That's what it's saying here. You go to another a passage in the Bible, Psalm 8. I'm just going to read bits of it to you, but King David uh, repeats these truths. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. What, what is mankind that you're mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers of the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet. Now, again, in the early ancient cultures, right, who did the humans, who did humans bow down to? They bowed down to statues made of wood and stone, right? Created things, often fashioned in the shape of what, these idols? Often fashioned in the shape of animals, right? God wants his people to know that creation doesn't have rule over them, but rather they're given the responsibility to rule over creation. And so in our world, we see that, don't we? Humans rule when we use materials um, of the world to make things. We use wood and, and metals and we, for, we use trees to produce things like musical instruments and, and books to read. And, and we, we mine and we fashion minerals and iron. We work the land to create vegetation to consume and for our livestock to consume, which we consume. And we invent materials to put up giant buildings. But, but the danger is there too for us, isn't there? We... we worship the created. We worship the gods of fashion and materialism and gadgets and fast cars and the, and the way that we use our time and our money and in our energy. We see that sometimes they become the gods that we worship. 
It's a message that we need to hear as well. And we are actually, we're actually more inhuman than we are human when, we're, when we allow the creation to rule over us. The creation role becomes reversed. But let's think about this on another issue regarding what it means to rule. Now, again, this is another tricky topic for our people, for people in our world who, who think this idea of rule and dominion gives us license to abuse. Let's be honest. Humans have a tragic track record of use, abuse, and exploit, rather than care, respect, and steward. Let's be honest. Let's get that out there. There's a guy in Canada. His name's David Suzuki. I've got a photo of him from Google. He's a leading figure and professor on matters of science and environmental responsibility. Now, Suzuki believes Christians are on the wrong side of environmental care. And it's verses like this one that use words like rule and dominion that makes humans think that we can abuse the creation around us. Is that true, though? A Christian professor called John Stackhouse had lunch with him, and he wrote this on his blog. And he said this in the way he responded to David Suzuki. He said, in the whole known universe, we are the only species that takes responsibility for the others. Human beings take responsibility for the others. The only species that demonstrates the slightest interest in naming, tending, and and conserving the others. The only species that indeed is accountable for the stewardship of the others. And the only species that feels guilt when its stewardship fails. We humans are the only species that cares for everything else because we are the only species that, at our best, cares about everything else. Now, if human beings really are to treat other species on the same level as David Suzuki advocates, then we would be free to treat every other species the way every other species treats every other species. And that truly would entail utterly, utter, utter ruthlessness regarding every other creature only as a threat, a tool, or a food source. Do you hear what he's saying? When God says we are the Imago Dei, made in his image, It means we're called to rule in a way that God would rule. And God loves his creation, friends. He cares for it and he sustains it. He wants to see his creation flourish. So what right do we have as humanity who are meant to be representatives of God on this earth to abuse and exploit it? To rule over creation means to steward it. That means we do need to care about recycling and upcycling. We do need to think about our water bottles and keep cups. Bring them to church if you want. We, do, should, we should consider buying secondhand furniture if it's hygienic and not nasty. We should reduce waste and, and learn to compost. We should care for our wildlife and even animal rights to some extent. I was deeply moved and horrified when I travelled last year to places like Bali and Thailand and, and I saw the way that they exploited animals, chained to poles used for tourist photos. It was, it was shocking and so sad. And friends, let's not encourage things like that. We're made in the image of God, which means being responsible to care and steward and love the world God has created for us to enjoy and flourish in. And I want to encourage you to go look into this more. Watch documentaries. Watch Before the Flood by Leonardo DiCaprio. He's, he's very easy to listen to and the abc you know the the war on waste episodes if you saw that online the abc um, program war on waste watch some of these stuff like get educated to be human and to reflect god is to rule over creation in a way that sustains and stewards and loves our world 
the reality is that we suck at being human sometimes. Loving and treating each other with respect and dignity, caring for those in our world who might be experiencing modern day slavery or giving voices to the unborn, or sometimes even hating community, we'd rather be alone, we don't want to deal with people, we live in a broken world where humanity's not living out this uniqueness, this purpose or responsibilities that we were created for. And it's hard. Some of us truly desire to do all those things well and perfectly. I know for me, I want to care about everything. Everything I said about today, I want to do that all perfectly, but I can't. And I have to remind myself that I'm just a man. And I look to a God who is all-knowing, all-powerful, all-present. And I look to humanity and we are, we are not. God is infinite and we are finite. God doesn't sleep, but we do and need to. I often need to remember this truth. This truth. Yeah, I want to help those who are hurting. I want to answer every phone call and every message I get and fix everyone's problems. I want to care for you if you're struggling. I want to be there for each and every one of you. But realistically, I can't. I can't fix the problems of our world alone. Sometimes I wish I could. But being human means we're only finite. You know, there is one who was perfect, the perfect human being. Jesus was a perfect human being. And we're told he reflects God fully. Let's look at Colossians 1.15. We looked at this last week. It says this, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rules or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now think about it. Think about Jesus for a second, if you know anything about him. He came to our earth to restore people and, and give the broken amongst us value and worth. He loved the disabled, the crippled. He loved the sick, the dying. He loved children. He loved women, the moral people who were rejected in society. He gave them value and worth as human beings, as the way God treats us. He loves them and brings together people in community to foster real relationships and doesn't treat others rudely based on their ethnicity or their job titles. He cares for future generations and he wants to restore the creation that's suffering. He wants to hold. He is the one who holds all things together. God created us to be human, to reflect his glory. But we don't do that very well, do we? But there is one who does, and that's Jesus. And so in our pursuit of reflecting God, let's keep following the example of Jesus who imaged God perfectly on our behalf, who allows us to stand before God reconciled to him through what he achieved for us on the cross in his death, in his resurrection, but restoring us to the full image of humanity that God intended for us. And so we read in other passages, Paul, he writes about this in 2 Corinthians, he says, and we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being changed into his likeness from one degree of glory to another. In 1 John 3, 2, it also talks about this. We are God's children now. It does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. In both passages, are talking about this idea of us being made more like God reflecting, being more restored into the likeness of God as we were intended to, to image originally. And we look at the world and at the, at the way the world is hurting and the, and the way people around us are hurting. 
Let's start trusting it. Let's start praying to it. Let's start leaning into it to the one who can, who has and is doing something about it and, and ask him to, to work through us in the way that we can live out our humanity and purpose in this world as God's people. Understanding all this stuff about the Imago Day has really transformed the way I see human beings. And hopefully it's been helpful for you too that we're more than just molecules and atoms, more than just a, a body or a mind or feelings. We, we got to see ourselves as a whole, as God intended for us to, to be made in his image. You know, the, the, what I talked about last week, our desire to create, our need for relationships, our sense of justice, our responsibility for our world and, and a multitude of other innate human longings express this very idea that we're created to reflect the good and great God, friends. But I also think that our humanity often falls short of what we were intended to do. As I re-listened to that great song by Joan Osborne, I realized that her lyrics resonate with us because we all want to know if God was one of us. We all want to know what God would do as a human being. Would he just be a slob like one of us? Would he just take a bus trying to make his way home? But we have in history seen, haven't we? We know the perfect human being who has come in the person of Jesus. So let's chase after him as our model for being truly human. Let's pray.